Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Tiffany Meyer and here are today's top stories. Hamas terrorists release a new video of a hostage, what she says directly addressing Israel's prime minister and why he calls it cruel propaganda. Aid for Israel is on the horizon, but disagreements between Congress and the White House could delay it. How will the White House and Senate react? More anti-Semitic events in 2023 than in decades. Find out why the White House says we can't just stand by and how the New York governor responds to graphic threats at a university. In Colorado, former President Trump's candidacy is on the line. Why a group of Republicans want him off the ballot and how Trump's team could fight back. That's as a new Iowa poll shows Trump in the lead over other GOP presidential contenders. The White House making its first big attempt to formally regulate AI. That as the president speaks out about a tentative deal reached between United Auto Workers and the big three car makers. And a win for the Lone Star State. A federal judge today temporarily blocking the Department of Homeland Security from cutting razor wire installed by Texas along its border with Mexico. The hostage situation in the Middle East takes a disturbing turn. In a video, a hostage is seen pleading for help, directly addressing Israel's prime minister. His response is decisive, signaling Hamas's tactics won't work. NTD's Jason Perry has the latest, and a warning, this report contains footage that some viewers may find disturbing. On Monday, Hamas terrorists released a chilling video of three hostages. The woman in the middle addressed her message to Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. Netanyahu later addressed the situation. I want to make clear Israel's position regarding a ceasefire. Just as the United States would not agree to a ceasefire after the bombing of Pearl Harbor or after the terrorist attack of 9-11, Israel will not agree to a cessation of hostilities with Hamas after the horrific attacks of October 7th. Calls for a ceasefire are calls for Israel to surrender to Hamas, to surrender to terrorism, to surrender to barbarism. That will not happen. Netanyahu also released a statement on X saying the video is cruel psychological propaganda. But a grandson of a hostage in Hamas captivity sees the video in a positive uh, it gives light. It a lot of hope to see that they're still alive. Um, we haven't given up on them yet. We know they're alive and we're going to do anything we can to bring them back. He stood in front of more than 200 empty beds set up to symbolize the men, women and children held captive by Hamas. Many of them were taken hostage during a surprise attack in which Hamas terrorists murdered over 1,400 innocent civilians in Israel. Since then, Israel has vowed to defeat the Hamas terrorist group to ensure such an attack will never happen again. 
Also on Monday, the Israeli military released footage of its recent ground operations. Israeli Defense Forces spokesperson Daniel Hagari explained part of their strategy. We move on the ground, identify the terrorists, and attack from the air. Ground forces are also directly engaging terrorists. The fighting is being carried out in the Gaza Strip. And he further explained that their ground operations also aim to free the hostages and return them home. On Monday, Israel said its forces rescued an Israeli soldier from Hamas captivity during the ground offensive. She was captured back in Israel on October 7th. And since being free, she has undergone medical checks and is doing well. Jason Perry, NTD News. Several hundreds of Americans are still inside Gaza, waiting to get out from the Rafah crossing. National Security Council spokesman John Kirby today said Israel and Egypt are willing to let them out, but Hamas is holding up the evacuation by making a series of demands. He didn't elaborate on what those demands are. Meanwhile, when asked whether the U.S. would call for a ceasefire at some point, Kirby said a ceasefire is not the right answer, and Hamas is the only one that would gain from one. How soon could the U.S. financially support Israel? Newly elected Speaker Mike Johnson plans to move an aid package this week. But President Biden's request to lump Israel and Ukraine aid together has sparked disagreements in Congress that could delay the process. Entity's Melina Weiskup reports from Capitol Hill. Now that the House is back in session, sending aid to Israel is Speaker Mike Johnson's top priority. Although this is also his first major legislative battle, Speaker Johnson has vowed to put together a $14 billion Israel aid package to put on the House floor this week. And while most of Congress is united around the idea of sending financial support to Israel, there are disagreements at play that could delay this request. Specifically, this is around lumping together Ukraine aid with Israel aid, which is a request that was made by President Biden. He wanted Congress to approve a $106 billion aid package with $14 billion to Israel, $61 billion to, to Ukraine. But most Republicans in the House are not willing to comply with that request. Here's why. What's the president's view on how long we're going to be doing this? Uh, this funding will get us uh, close to $200 billion. Um, how are we going to pay for it? There needs to be a level of, of, of scrutiny and an, an assertion that we have a we have a common goal. Israel aid is 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 immediate. Ukraine received already a lot of funding. We need to take care of Israel, uh, and we have American hostages. We have Americans who were killed. And while most House Republicans are insisting to separate this Israel aid from Ukraine aid, the Senate Republican leader Mitch McConnell, along with Democrats, want to keep the two tied together. Speaker Johnson last week after a meeting at the White House stood firm by his decision to separate the Israel aid from Ukraine aid. It's also worth noting that Johnson is open to passing Ukraine aid at some point, although he does want conditions to be tied to that, which is different from his previous voting record. Now the question is, how will the Senate and the White House House respond if the House does pass this Israel aid package as a standalone package. Will they insist on keeping it tied to the Ukraine aid and have to defend that position to the public? Or will they see Israel aid as too urgent to delay and ultimately concede? Reporting from Capitol Hill, Melina Weiskup, NTD News. Russian President Vladimir Putin today blaming the West for an anti-Israel riot at an airport in Russia's predominantly Muslim Dagestan region on Sunday. Putin accused Western agents in Ukraine of using social networks to provoke the riot. 
In response, National Security Council spokesperson John Kirby said it's classic Russian rhetoric to blame the West instead of calling out anti-Semitism in Russia. NTD's Daniel Monahan has more on the incident, which resulted in at least 60 arrests and the injury of nine police officers. The riot was sparked by reports of a plane from Israel arriving at the airport. The flight from Tel Aviv was quickly surrounded by an angry mob upon landing. On the tarmac, some rioters reportedly tried breaking into the plane. Here a suspect is surrounded by the mob. His alleged crime? Being Jewish. He says he's from Uzbekistan, but they don't believe him. They say he must wait until they make a decision on whether he is free to go. One mob member yells to get his phone. Here, the enraged mob storms into the terminal building, carrying Palestinian flags, screaming Allahu Akbar. The halls are soon flooded as cries of God is the greatest continue. The enraged mob searches for Jewish people. They begin pulling doors open, frantic in their search. A woman seems to tell them that what they're looking for is not behind her door. Outside, the frenzied mob tries to flip over a police car. Here, a crowd gathers outside a hotel after a Jewish man checked into it, reportedly shouting, show your face or we will come into the hotel and pull you out of there. Security forces close the airport and remove the rioters. 20 people were injured during the riot before Makhachkala airport was back under control. Security forces say the passengers on the plane were safe. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. Turning now to a rise of anti-Semitism here in the United States, the Biden administration and local governments are now taking concrete steps to fight hatred and attacks. NTD's Arian Pazdar has more on that and an incident at a New York University over the weekend. That threat's rising, Poppy, no question about it. I mean, in 2022, there were more anti-Semitic events in this country uh, than there had been since 1979. National Security Council advisor John Kirby on Monday speaking on the rise of anti-Semitism in the U.S. Kirby explains what the Biden administration is doing to fight that trend. We're working very closely at a federal level with state and local authorities to be able to better identify threats uh, to the Jewish community and disrupt them before they can, they can, uh, they can actually uh, take action. This comes as the Biden administration on Monday set up a plan to fight anti-Semitism on college campuses. We can't stand by and stand silent in the face of hate. Cybersecurity experts with Homeland Security are reportedly set to work with schools to combat anti-Semitic content online. No one should be afraid to walk from their dorm or their dining hall to a classroom. New York Governor Kathy Hochul on Monday visiting Cornell University. This after anti-Semitic threats were posted on a discussion board related to Cornell. The graphic threats reportedly showed murder, sexual violence and comparisons to animals. We will not tolerate threats or hatred or anti-Semitism. She announced the state will ramp up security on campuses across New York. The FBI and local investigators are now reportedly looking into the threats as well. Meanwhile, students at Columbia University in New York City rallying against anti-Semitism. My Jewish sisters and brothers and I are on the receiving end of death threats from our peers. The students demand the university do more to tackle hatred, hoping that the current rise in anti-Semitism comes to an end. Ariane Pastar, NTD News.
And the landlord accused of killing a young Palestinian boy in Chicago pleaded not guilty in court this morning. The 71-year-old landlord was indicted last week. He's accused of fatally stabbing a six-year-old Palestinian boy and also of critically hurting the mother in an alleged hate crime. Allegations say the landlord attacked the two because of their religion and nationality. The Justice Department and the FBI are also looking at the hate crime charges. In Colorado, a trial to determine whether or not former President Trump will remain on the state's ballot. But some call the plaintiff's case a big lie. Here's NTD's Arlene Richards with more. As you know, Six Republicans don't want former President Trump on the Colorado ballot. They filed a lawsuit in a state court accusing him of inciting an insurrection on the state capitol. They're asking the judge to order his removal from the ballot. Trump tried to get out of the case, but Judge Sarah Wallace said the state's law doesn't limit her from considering federal election matters. In recent months, liberal groups across the country have been drumming up support for barring Trump from seeking office. They're relying on Section 3 of the 14th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution. Attorney James Bopp Jr. explained the law. Section 3 of the 14th Amendment is called the Disqualification Clause. And what it does is that if someone has taken an oath to defend the Constitution of the United States and then engages in insurrection, that's the exact wording, engages in insurrection, uh, then that person is disqualified from taking the oath of office again. Colorado's election law deals with certain criteria such as age, citizenship, and residency. Bob says there are two reasons the 14th Amendment insurrection clause isn't applicable here. First is they're talking about qualifications, not disqualifications. And this uh, Section 3 is a disqualifier, not a qualifi- qualification. And the uh, Arizona Attorney uh, Supreme Court uh, expressly ruled that their statute about qualifications did not include a disqualification as in Section 3. The second thing is is more substantive, and that is uh, a person must be, quote, qualified, end of quote, on or before the date of the term the office begins. So it's a assume office qualification statute. In other words, even if Trump should be disqualified, he said under Section 3, it can't be decided until Congress meets to certify the election, and then it has to be by a two-thirds vote. The plaintiff sued the Secretary of State, Democrat Jenna Griswold, but she's not taking a position on the case. Her attorney said she believes Trump is significantly responsible for an insurrection. Bob said to say insurrection is a lie. And, of course, it, the, the lie here is that there was an insurrection on January 6th. And the second lie was that Trump uh, engaged in it. In other words, committed a direct overt act. Plaintiff's case hinges on this judge determining that Trump incited an insurrection. The judge dismissed a defense under the First Amendment. She allowed the plaintiffs to admit 408 out of 411 findings from the January 6th committee report and most of the plaintiff's witnesses have some connection to the January 6th incident. Bob said Trump is not receiving any due process, there are no rules of evidence, and he can't defend himself upon any constitutional right. 
The numbers are in for a new Iowa poll, and data shows that 43% of Republican caucus-goers are rallying behind former President Trump. NTD's Jack Bradley has the update. The poll puts the New York native 27 percentage points ahead of the GOP's next top contenders, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and former United Nations Ambassador Nikki Haley, both received 16%. The battle for the second place has become a heated one, with Haley surging 10 points in the Iowa caucus since August, when she took six, much of that support coming from independents. On the other hand, DeSantis held 19% in August, but saw three points drop off this month. Both have announced they'll focus more on campaigning in Iowa. That's ahead of the state's caucus day in mid-January. Support for Iowa for lower polling candidates has moved little in comparison. Senator Tim Scott lost two points from 9% to 7. Former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie is down one point, now with 4%. Entrepreneur Vivek Ramaswamy held on to his 4%. North Dakota Governor Doug Burgum gained a point for a total of three. Former Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson saw his support get off the ground, rising from 0 to 1%, while Texas Pastor Ryan Binkley remains at 0. Besides the numbers, one candidate has dropped off the list. Former Vice President Mike Pence said Saturday that, quote, this is not my time. His departure from the race comes after his Iowa poll numbers dropped from 6% in August to 2% now. President Biden turning to emergency federal powers to rein in the risk of AI. His administration vows to move faster than the technology itself. NTD's Iris Tao has more from the White House. President Biden has invoked the Korean War-era Defense Production Act in signing an executive order today that would mandate major AI companies to inform the government when they're developing AI systems that could pose risks to our national security, public health, or economic security. It also asked them to share the results of all safety tests of their AI systems before releasing them to the public. President Biden says AI must be governed. One thing is clear. To realize the promise of AI and avoid the risk, we need to govern this technology and must be governed. The executive order would also ask the Commerce Department to develop standard watermarking to label AI-generated content. And President Biden says that's to help the public tell what's real from what's not. Deepfakes use AI-generated audio and video to smear reputations, speak for spreads fake news. I've watched one of me on a couple of times. <laughs> I said, when the hell did I say that? Before today's announcement, the White House did get 15 major AI companies such as Meta, Google and Microsoft to agree to voluntarily allow for outside testing of their AI systems. But now it's a mandate for them to do so and more actions could also come from Congress. Meanwhile, on the economy, President Biden today held the latest tentative deal reached between United Auto Workers and the big three automakers and calling it a historic agreement that showed worker power. Reporting from the White House, Aris. How and TD News. Moving on to immigration, a federal judge today temporarily barred the Biden administration from cutting the razor wire at the Texas-Mexico border. The barrier is part of Governor Greg Abbott's Operation Lone Star, a measure aimed at deterring illegal crossing at the southern border. In response to the ruling, Abbott posted on X, formerly Twitter, another win for Texas in our historic border mission. 
Last week, Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton sued the Department of Homeland Security, saying it let in illegal immigrants by destroying the barrier installed by the state. The temporary order is set to expire on November 13th, unless the court rules to extend it. Coming up, Pharmageddon is here. Pharmacy staff members across the country are walking off the job, and patients may have trouble getting their medicine. What's the reason for the work stoppage? General Motors and the United Auto Workers Union reach a tentative agreement. The deal effectively ends the strike against Detroit's big three automakers. And released on a $4 million bond, the man charged with killing four university students with his car pleads not guilty. More soon here on NTD News. Welcome back. Yet another pharmacy strike, this time dubbed by organizers as Pharmageddon. Some pharmacy staff at Walgreens, CVS and Rite Aid have decided to walk off the job because of unsafe working conditions. NTD's Christina Kim has more. Some of the pharmacy staff at Walgreens, CVS and Rite Aid are walking off the job. The work stoppage, planned to take place Monday to Wednesday, is a bid for better working conditions. For years, staff have complained of understaffed teams in conjunction with a growing workload. They also want higher pay. Staff members say overworking pharmacists leads to burnout as well as more mistakes, like giving patients the wrong drug. These mistakes can then put patients at risk. Between 7,000 and 9,000 people die every year in the U.S. because of medication errors. These errors can include things like giving the wrong medication, the wrong dose, the wrong method of administration, the wrong drug name, or prescribing drugs that interact. Aside from verifying and filling out prescriptions, pharmacists have to take and make patient phone calls, administer vaccines, work with insurance companies and doctors, and deal with in-store customers. The staff walking out aren't part of a union, so it's unknown exactly how many will participate. One organizer estimates around 5,000 will stop working. In response to the strike, Walgreens told NTD that it recognizes the incredible work of their pharmacists and technicians and that corporate leaders are in the pharmacies regularly to listen to workers' concerns and frustrations. The company says it's focusing on recruiting, retaining, and rewarding its pharmacy staff. Christina Kim, NTD News. And as we reported on earlier in the show, General Motors and the United Auto Workers Union have reached a tentative agreement. The deal effectively ends the strike against Detroit's big three automakers. We spoke with NTD Business's Don Ma for details. Don Ma, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, always great to be here, Tiffany. To begin, tell us about the situation here. Right. So the terms of the deal with General Motors uh, will be similar to the deals already announced at Ford and Stellantis. And this deal would essentially put an end to a nearly seven weeks long strike uh, against the automakers. And President Joe Biden today uh, applauded the tentative agreement, saying, you know, it's great that they uh, they've reached this point. Uh, there's total of more than 18,000 UAW members at GM now on strike. But 
that in just a few days, workers will return to work uh, after the official announcement of the agreement. And there is about 16,600 strikers at Ford who have already returned to work, and more than 14,000 uh, Stellantis strikers are in the process of returning to work. So then what happens next is that uh, UAW President Sean Fain must now get the contracts ratified by rank-and-file UAW members. And the process began on Sunday when Fain met with leaders of Ford uh, UAW local unions. And it's still possible that I have to point out that members at one or more companies could vote down the tentative deal, which would then lead to a resumption of a strike at that company. And Don, as you mentioned, this comes on the heels of the tentative deal between Stellantis and the UAW. Tell us about the situation there. Right. Uh, so the Stellantis deal mirrors the one that was reached earlier last week with Ford. Uh, of course, uh, we all know this is a tentative agreement. Uh, it must be ratified. 43,000 members at Stellantis still has to vote on the deal, but about 14,000 UAW workers were told to drop their picket signs, actually, and return to work. Uh, so the agreement will end a week's long strike at this automaker as well. And what did the workers get as part of the deal? The, this pact includes a 25% increase in general wages over the next four and a half years for top assembly plant workers. And with 11% coming once the deal is ratified, workers also are going to get a cost of living pay increases to bring the raises to a compounded 33%. And with top assembly plant workers making more than $42 per hour at Stellantis. Like the Ford contracts, uh, the Stellantis deal will run through April 30th, 2028, and about 1,200 workers will be hired back, plus another 1,000 workers will be added for a new electric vehicle plant uh, as a result of the deal. So that's just an overview here. A lot happening. Well, Don Ma, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thank you. A Malibu man who was charged with killing four Pepperdine University students in an out-of-control BMW has been released on bond. NTD's Christina Corona has more on the update. Fraser Michael Bohm, the 22-year-old driver who was accused of fatally striking four Pepperdine University students, has been granted release on $4 million bond following his plea of not guilty to murder charges Friday. Bohm was arrested on October 24th and charged with four counts of murder for the deaths of Neve Rolston, Peyton Stewart, Asha Weir, and Deslin Williams after allegedly losing control of his red BMW along the Pacific. Pacific Coast Highway. Bohm pleaded not guilty in court on Wednesday and had his bail lowered from $8 million to $4 million. Michael Kraut, Fraser Bohm's defense attorney, claims that Bohm was involved in a road rage incident that started at Duke's Malibu, a popular bar and restaurant near the crash site. Kraut says they have security footage to support their claims and suggest that authorities may have arrested the wrong person. A Malibu resident told NTD, Fraser is a really good kid and is very well known in this community. His parents bought him a BMW when he was 21 and unfortunately this happened. Bohm's family mansion worth $8,795,000 features panoramic ocean views and is located in the exclusive Big Rock area of 
Malibu. He attended Oaks Christian High School, a private school near Los Angeles, with an annual tuition cost of about $31,000, where he was on the baseball team before graduating in 2020. Investigators have determined that Bohm was not under the influence of drugs or alcohol at the time of the crash. Bohm could face potential multiple life prison sentences if convicted as charged. Christina Corona, NTD News, Malibu. Coming up, former President Trump's chances in the Colorado ballot case. Why a former prosecutor thinks it's going to the Supreme Court and support from a surprising quarter on his gag order. And after former VP Mike Pence drops out of the presidential race, many are wondering who's next. Why does an epic TV series director believe many candidates are actually positioning themselves for 2028? Find out after the break. Welcome back. If you're just joining us now, here are some of today's top headlines. A video released by Hamas terrorists shows Israeli hostages begging for a ceasefire. Prime Minister Netanyahu called it cruel propaganda and said a ceasefire is not on the table. The Biden administration today vowing to combat anti-Semitism in the U.S. Meanwhile, New York's governor announces the state will ramp up security on college campuses to tackle threats against Jews. President Biden orders AI companies to inform the government of potential dangers, the first big attempt to formally regulate AI. The executive order also calls for a watermark on AI content to prevent deepfakes. In Colorado, a group of Republicans seek to take former President Trump's name off the ballot. This comes as a new poll shows 43 percent of Republican caucusgoers are backing Trump. Could Trump really be disqualified from the ballot in Colorado? How would voters react? We speak with a former federal prosecutor about this case and Trump's other legal battles. Cash Patel, thank you so much for joining us. Great to be back on the show. Hey, thanks for having me back on. Cash, the push to remove Trump from the ballot on the Constitution Clause of Insurrection is entering a new phase with the Colorado court hearing arguments today. There's rumblings these cases could actually reach the Supreme Court. How do you view this? Could we actually see Trump removed from the ballot? Look, I'm not the constitutional law expert, but I think these cases are another example of a weaponized system of justice reaching the state court level system. And I think anything that has to do with presidential elections is ultimately going to have to be decided by the Supreme Court because there's a mixed bag of state and federal law in it. And so I don't know what the outcome of this case is going to be. And I do know that I've read um, some of the material that they are relying on to say, quote unquote, President Trump can be removed uh, from the ballot, except that part of the uh, 14th Amendment doesn't name the president. It names everybody else. So I'm not really sure how that one's going to square out with the legalese there. But as we've learned, I don't think the law matters anymore. If you have judicial activists um, bringing these cases, they don't really care. It's over before it started. 
And switching gears to Trump's federal elections case, the judge has reimposed the gag order on the former president. Now Trump has vowed to appeal it, saying, quote, it will not stand. What's next in terms of Trump's appeal? Is he likely to succeed here? He has to. Um, he must. This is a grotesque, ultimate weaponization of justice by a political activist judge who has shown her animosity for the defendant appearing before her, not because Cash Patel said so, but because she wrote it in her legal opinions regarding January 6th, not to mention the fact that Judge Chutkin should recuse herself from these proceedings because she participated for a period of time as a judge in the Russiagate case where I, was, I appeared before her on the source of the Hillary Clinton-funded Steele dossier and the publication of those records. If she recused herself from that hearing, on her own, I might add, how can she be a neutral and arbiter judge of the facts and the law if President Trump is the subject and litigant before her? That just goes to show you the lengths judicial activists will go to stay in the game and these decisions not just hindering free speech, but crippling free speech, are being made at the federal district court level, and the only remedy is going to be the Supreme Court. Any president of the United States, anyone up for office, if they are charged by law enforcement or otherwise, has always, always gone after the DOJ and the prosecutors and the cops. That's what you do. You put them on trial. The ACLU is actually coming out and siding with the former president, saying this gag order is violating Trump's First Amendment rights. Now, this is despite the ACLU having filed over 400 legal cases against the former president. How do you read this brief? Well, I guess even a broken clock is right twice a day. I mean, the ACLU should have been filing briefs. As a former public defender, they should have been filing briefs in almost every January 6th case, in almost every proceeding against Donald Trump. They should have been standing with Donald Trump. These guys are supposed to be the arbiters of free speech, due process, um, the fundamental rights in the fourth, fifth, and sixth constitutions uh, for criminal defendants. And now they even see that this infringement on free speech, this, you know, um, bastardization of the free speech clause in the First Amendment that the ACLU cannot even let it pass. So it's about time they got their act together and stopped weaponizing and politicizing their own supposed apolitical um, 501c3. And at least they're going to get this one right by standing with Trump. But what they need to do is go back and fix all the errors they made along the way, because those decisions by the ACLU over history to go after Trump have led us to this position in this January 6th uh, case in D.C. And now, in terms of the election, Trump is leading in most polls, almost every single one of them. Now, with all of these legal cases against him, how do you see that impacting the election cycle? Yeah, I, I wish I could predict that. I know the one thing it won't impact is President Trump. He grows more and more uh, relentless every day with his desire to put this country back on track, so he will not be shut down by them. As to where they go, look, with these types of cases involving a president and a presidential election and the candidate for the GOP or likely nominee, they're not going to be resolved at the, at the trial level. They will go up. They will go to the appellate courts. Then they will go to the Supreme Court. If you're in the state court system, they'll go to their Supreme Court, then the federal courts, then the appellate court, then the Supreme Court. And people forget how long these appeals take. I mean, usually it's like three years. So what's going to happen even if one of these folks convicts them, convicts Donald Trump baselessly, I might add? Are they going to put him in prison? Are they really going to take 
uh, the justice system and actually weaponize it even more so. I think that's going to turn off a lot of voters who normally would have voted against Trump because they are now even seeing that the targets of these investigations and prosecutions are just completely baselessly broad. And they're being brought more and more in local communities. So it should, it should you know, put a scare in everyone. Cash Patel, thank you so much for your time. Thanks so much. Turning now to the presidential candidates who are not leading in the polls, we saw former Vice President Mike Pence drop out of the race on Saturday. Could others soon follow suit? We spoke with the director of the epic TV series, The Presidential Roller Coaster 2024, who believes many of the candidates are actually looking ahead to 2028. Roger Simon, thank you so much for joining us. Great to be back on the show. Oh, good to be here. Roger, there's a lot happening in the political scene. We have former VP Mike Pence, who's dropped out of the race. Now President Biden is seeing more competition from within his own party. How do you see the 2024 election cycle heating up? I think it is actually much the same. I mean, the whole thing with Pence's disappearance is predictable. He was going nowhere. So sooner or later, he was going to to uh, leave anyway. And it was rather dramatic that he did it all, all of a sudden at the Republican Jewish Coalition's conference, but it happened. And the the man running against against Biden, it, you know, is so far outside it. it I don't think it's going to go anywhere because they, the thing about the Democrats is they've learned to function like a good uh, uh, pollute barrel style party. <laughs> with the unanimity that would make the Soviet Union envious. So uh, I, I have a suspicion that it's not going to amount to a lot. But I could be surprised. In fact, I'd be happy to be surprised. And, Roger, you mentioned the Jewish convention that happened over the weekend, and Trump and others spoke there. I know you interviewed Governor Doug Burgum. Tell us what stood out to you about the governor. About Burgum? Yes. Uh, well, I, I think that the, what stands out about Bergman is he actually knows the issues very well. And, and it, it, it's nice to hear because he sticks to the issues, actually. He's, he's not a, um, you know, a pamphleteer, as you might otherwise. He, you know, he, and, his, and his area of expertise being from North Dakota is not surprisingly energy. But it's also um, it's also tech because he's a software guy, made his fortune in software and sold it to Microsoft. Uh, so he knows those worlds very well. Um, his campaign is not gaining fire. Well, I think a lot of these people are running with the next election cycle in mind, uh, frankly, uh, because the chances of any of them pushing through Trump at this point is very hard to see. I mean, you could tell that at the con at the conference, actually, because Trump, for the first time, uh, appeared with the other candidates, not at the same time, but serially. And he appeared last, although they had the fiction that this was all done at random, but I, I don't believe it. Anyway, when he appeared, the whole place went crazy. Uh, and, you know, with standing ovation big time. So, uh, you know, you don't see it happening uh, for any of these other candidates, uh, barring 
Um, unless, of course, he goes to jail in a manner that he can't run from inside jail. So, uh, but aside from that, I, I think a lot of this is all about um, 2028. There's a new NBC Des Moines survey out that shows Trump is still quite far in the lead. And we have DeSantis and Haley jostling for second place. That's in, among Republicans in Iowa. Now, that being said, despite Trump's lead, a lot of Iowans are still considering other candidates. How important are polls in the election cycle? You know, I hate to say it, but I think they're important. <laughs> You know, uh, because you want to say, oh, they're fake, blah, 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 you know, who believes the polls? And yet, but most of the time, they come out relatively close. Uh, that's the unfortunate truth. And um, although I have had the experience of having a pollster essentially when I was running a company say to me on the phone, not directly, but uh, subtextually, how would you like this to come out? It's uh, it's not a great thing to hear, really. Anyway, um, but you, you, I, I think I saw that Des Moines poll. The Des Moines Register is a good newspaper, and they are the best when it comes to to uh, monitoring public opinion in Iowa. Uh, they've been doing it forever, and I would take this, that poll pretty seriously. Sounds like it does have quite an impact on the election, then. Well, an impact, I don't know, but it will tell us, it tells us something. I may go out to the the caucus because it's a really interesting thing, and I recommend all Americans to see it because it's, it's a, you see democracy in action at the Iowa caucus because you, you, what you do is see people change their minds in front of you because they walk to a different corner to support a different candidate. You go... Wow, that's interesting. Uh, and you, it's very hard to predict who's going to do that. You, it's a psychological game you can play with yourself. That sound quite fascinating. Well, Roger Simon, always great seeing you. Good to be here. Coming up in the World Series, Texas starts their ace tonight. Though he struggled this postseason, can Max Scherzer turn it around? And fans set up a memorial for Emmy-nominated Friends star Matthew Perry. What they have to say after the actor was found dead over the weekend. We'll have that story after the break. Welcome back. And now for your sports news, we're joined by NTD's Dave Martin. Dave, today is one of the rare days when all four major sports are in action. Let's start with the World Series with Game 3 tonight. Now, Arizona has actually led for most of the first two games. What does Texas need to do to grab the momentum? As many at-bats as possible for Adolis Garcia. You know, he hasn't reached David Ortiz clutchness status yet, but eight home runs, 22 RBIs, and 14 postseason games is pretty amazing. Meanwhile, they've got Max Scherzer starting tonight. He's kind of struggled in his two starts uh, against Houston. Uh, but, you know, um, he's, too, he's too good to have three bad ones in a row. I really think that... Uh, it's been a strange postseason, but I think he bounces back tonight. Hmm. And now switching gears to college football, your favorite team, Kansas, pulled a major upset over Oklahoma for their first loss. How does this shake up the playoff race? 
Well, it really clears it up. You know, basically now there's four undefeated teams left for the four playoff spots. You've got Georgia, Florida State, Washington, and then whoever wins between Ohio State and Michigan. Had Oklahoma won out, you would have had five undefeated teams, it could have, one from each of the Power Five conferences for four playoff spots. That would have been really, I would say, a nightmare scenario for the committee. And now there is one undefeated team left. You haven't mentioned James Madison. Why are they not eligible for the playoffs this year? Yeah, they're not eligible for a New Year's Six Bowl game either. It's part of the rules for transitioning from FCS to FBS football. Uh, you know, they, I'm sure the committee was probably also glad to not have to make that call. I'm also sure that they would not have taken them. They may be undefeated, but their best win is over by Virginia by just a point, but Virginia's just 2-6. and six. Now, six years ago, Central Florida was 12-0. and 0. They did not select them. I think they had them ranked 12th in the final rankings behind some one-loss and two-loss teams. Now, this won't happen next year, though, when they expand to 12 teams instead. And now looking at the NFL, the Cincinnati Bengals beat the San Francisco 49ers in impressive fashion. Would you say they're back after that rough start? Yeah, they certainly look like it. You know, Tony Romo had some very insightful comments yesterday. Joe Burrow has been limited by an injured leg. They really had only been able to put him in the shotgun formation. Now he can play under center. Uh, it really opens up the playbook for them a whole lot more, especially the play-action pass. Meanwhile, San Francisco is struggling. This is a third straight loss. It's like two teams going in separate directions. Brock Purdy has thrown five picks in his last three games. I still think as long as San Francisco and really Cincinnati don't have major injuries to their stars, I still think they're both contending teams. Well, as always, thanks for joining us, Dave. Thank you, Tiff. Emmy-nominated Friends star Matthew Perry found dead in his home at age 54. NTD's Stephanie Sakal hears more from his fans at a memorial outside his California home. Matthew Perry, the beloved actor known for his role as the witty Chandler Bing TV series Friends, tragically passed away on Saturday due to what seems to be a drowning incident in a hot tub at his Los Angeles residence right behind me. He was 54 years old. Pay tribute to Matthew, a fan of the show, watched it for many years and very saddened to hear of the, the death that we heard on Saturday. His sense of humor, he had a really good sense of humor, very good actor, um, down to earth. Matthew Perry expressed his strong desire to be remembered more for his efforts in helping people overcome addiction than for his role in Friends. He subsequently transformed his former residence in Malibu into a sober living facility known as the Perry House, which operated until 2015. Despite his own struggles with alcohol and drug abuse, he was open about his journey to recovery and his efforts to help others. He hoped that this contribution to addiction support would be his primary legacy rather than his acting career. Perry's candidness about his struggles, as detailed in his memoir, sheds light on his journey throughout mental health and addiction challenges. Stephanie Sikal, NTD News, California. And if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, you can email us at eveningnews at ntd.com. That's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Tiffany Meyer. Good night.